Hello, you're listening to Stellan Sportscast. Stellan Sportscast. And it's a very special Stellan Sportscast because today we are joined by Olympic gold medalist and award-winning sports broadcaster, Donna Deverona. Yay, Donna. Hi. 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 How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Great. Great. Well, this is Stellan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my my sister told me all about you. You're a real oh. fan. Yes. And I'm Aunt Tia. Thank it's you so great. much for joining us today. Good. This is Stellan's very first interview. Well, good. Yeah. Let's get started. Donna, so you won the Olympics. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, my name's Donna Deverona, and I went to the Olympics when I was 13, and I was the best in the world at my event, the 400-meter individual medley, at the age of 13. And I went to my first Olympics, but they didn't have my event until four years later. So I had to make it in another event, and I did as a freestyle sprinter. And I swam in the trials of a relay that went on to win the gold medal, but I only swam in the trials. So these days you get a gold medal for that because you're part of a team, but in those days you didn't. Um, well, how did you feel to stand up on the podium when you got the gold medal? Well, I trained four more years after I was 13 till I was 17. And I had uh, a lot of press, like, you know, you hear about Simone Biles and all the pressure. So Actually, when I won my individual medley, I was very relieved because everybody expected me to win. But I did get to swim the relay, um, four or five freestyle relay at the same Olympics, and I won a gold medal. So that was wonderful to be part of a team. I felt more joyous in a way because I would, when you're expected to win as an Olympian and you get all the press, it's kind of a relief when you do it. Yeah. When did you start swimming? Well, I grew up in San Diego and my father used to take me into the ocean when I was a toddler. And then we moved to San Francisco and I took swimming lessons like every other young kid. And I just loved the water. Then we moved from San Francisco to Lafayette and I used to be a towel girl in a locker room for 25 cents an hour, giving out towels so I could pay for my swim pass. And I used to spend the summers in a pool and then I had an older brother who played Little League Baseball. I really wanted to be a baseball player, but they didn't let little girls play. And he had a knee injury and I followed him to the pool and they had little races. And because in Lafayette I used to hike every day, you know, after school, I kind of was strong by the time I got in the pool. And in the little races, I was winning. And the coach said, you ought to go to a bigger pool, bigger competition. And I was almost 11. And a lot of coaches say you're too old, but one coach took me and um, it ha so happened that the coach's daughter had been to the Olympics. So all of a sudden I'm in a pool with the best in the world. And by the time I was 13, I went to the Olympics and I was training really grueling training right away because this coach was Finnish and he felt cross training was really important. And in those days they used to say, if you're a swimmer, you can't do anything else. But we used to work out in the park doing um, wind sprints we used to do some kinds of um, weight training. I was, we didn't do a lot because I was young and then long distance swimming. And um, that's where I got my start. So 
How many races have you competed in? And you don't have to say the exact number. I, I don't know, but in my day, there wasn't a world championship, you know, like in most sports, like track and field last summer, there's a world championship and then there's an Olympics and there's a Pan American games and there's national championships. In my day, we just did tours around the world. So I don't even know how many races I swam, but probably about a hundred and some top races in my four-year career around the world. Wow, that's that's a lot of races. I don't think I would, I would if I was a swimmer, I don't think I would compete in that many. There's a question on here that said, how can you count that I hundreds? And I think I think Pudrons was right. I guess the computer was right there. Okay, so in every race, did you always have confidence and think you're going to win? No, I I always got my confidence because I trained really hard. And I got my confidence by swimming really fast in practice. I mean, some swimmers had confidence even though they didn't do well in training, but uh, believe it or not, I used to break world records in training. So, you know, when your coach times you for an event and it nears a world record, then when you go into the big competition, you know that you're ready. So every workout I worked out as hard as I could just so I'd have my confidence going into a competition. But I never took it for granted. I always thought, you know, somebody else is out there working just as hard as I am, and maybe they they might be able to beat me. So I always went in a little scared. I, I have a yeah. question. You said that you used to break world records in, in uh, practice. If you break a world record in practice, does that count? Or does it have to no. be in competition? Okay. Well, it, because they have to certify the pool is is it the right distance? And you had to in my day they didn't have electronic, but you had three timers and they wanted to make sure you didn't miss a turn. In my day, in freestyle, you had to touch at the end of the pool every turn. Now you don't have to. So you had to have everybody there watching you to make sure it was certified as a real record. But practice was where, you know, you you, 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 again, you gain your confidence going into a big competition. Yeah. So if you could have played in another sport, what would you have chosen? Probably track and field, the 100 meter dash, which I'm totally unsuited for because I always kid people and say I'm not a land animal. I was a swimmer, <laughs> but I always loved track and field. And I think at your age, that's what I you know, love most was running. And even when I retired from swimming, I used to run a lot in parks um, and in on roads because um, I quit at 17 and I was traveling all over the world promoting the sport. So I'd go to parks and just run in my bare feet because it felt so good. You know, you hear about the runner's high, you know, when you keep pushing and pushing and then you just feel really great. And uh, I think that's probably what I would have loved. Yeah, yeah. But now everybody knows that you're um, not a land animal, so <laughs> yeah, yeah you're right. probably, probably in. <laughs> I think I probably would have loved to also be able to skate really well, like these figure skaters. But again, that was not my talent. Yeah, yeah. You were on melted ice, not. <laughs> yeah. My grandma loves skating too, but she came up and she was a dental hygienist. Yeah, well, yeah. Beach, so so <laughs> yeah and when you had your big race I knew about 
when you said you were going to fall start. <laughs> we watched that Olympic moment. Did you? Side note, Stellan and I did a lot of research on Donna before interviewing her, including watching a Team USA YouTube show called Olympic Moments, where Olympians highlight their stories of competing in the games. In Donna's episode, she talks about winning the gold medal in 1964, and she says that she had planned on doing a false start, which is when you dive in the water before the race starts. But why did you false start? Well, it became a habit. When I made my first Olympics, I was barely 5'2" and weighed almost a hundred pounds. And a lot of the women I swam against were very tall. And if it was a sprint and I was that short, they'd always have an advantage because they were taller than me. And in those days you could have two false starts before you were disqualified. And then whoever went in on the third false start would be disqualified. So in order to basically get the advantage on my side, I would false start and then everybody would be afraid to go in on the third false start. So they'd be very careful when they started. So in a way I was working the odds in my favor. It was a little psychological game. I, because I was wondering too, if it was like a, well, if everyone thought you were going to false start that then they would just be paying attention more to you. Well, like, that's another thing. I mean, I, I actually, I actually, that wasn't my plan, but um by the time I got to the Olympics, it really wasn't about size. It was about, I got so used to getting in the water before. And when we went to Tokyo, they said, you can't, can't warm up before you race. And I was used to that. So I just told that Olympics, I just went to everybody in the weight room, which is the psych room that I was going to fall start. I didn't do it to psych anybody out. Then later on, I thought, well, yeah. They were probably thinking, is she going to fall start? Is she not going to fall start? I'm supposed to be thinking in my race. I didn't do it. I did it because I thought I was being fair, but it was, it, it worked to my advantage. I was on the swim team for one year in high school and um, every sport has become so much more technologically like yes. you get this, but it's so interesting. Cause I remember even this was like the nineties, they would like have before the big the big race at the end of the season, they would have like a shaving party. And it was this whole thing about people shaving their heads, shaving everything to give them that. And it's so interesting to see the pictures from your race because it was like no goggles, no swim cap. It's amazing how much has changed in like- Nylon suits, nylon suits, (laughs) no flexibility. And we used to have what they called a modesty strip in front, which was a layer. So you'd have like a river run through it. You know, I mean- Lycra hadn't been invented yet. So I can't imagine the seconds that it costs me with a suit like that. And then we had to lobby and fight to get rid of the modesty panel because they thought it was, you're supposed to be modest. Well, by the time you put on a Speedo, forget it. And uh, we were able to change that, but it was really an issue with the, with the people that ran the sport. Wow. Sorry to interrupt you, Stellan, in your train of thought. What was your next question? Didn't you start on ABC Wide World of Sports when you were 17? Yes, I was. I was the youngest and first woman, um, I think, or young girl to be part of sports broadcasting. And I think it's because I always helped the broadcasters understand when they came to my national championships what the races were that they should cover. And they used to put a scuba diver under my lane before we had these fancy cameras. And he would sit underneath my lane with a camera, with a scuba tank. It's just so ABC could get different 
pictures. I mean, ABC was always trying to get a different view, a different concept, uh, a different visual on how to cover sports. So I was always so helpful. And then when I decided to retire at 17, because women didn't have scholarships or sp high school teams or college teams, I had to quit to put myself through school. I called ABC and said I could manage this because I love my sport. I really didn't want to leave. Um, if you give me a chance to cover swimming so I can stay around the sport. And at 17, they flew me to Yale University and I covered men in swimming. Wow. How do you prepare for work when you are at a, a sporting event or interview? Well, what I do is I go around to talk to as many athletes as I could when they weren't you know, under pressure. I would talk to the coaches. I would look up their times. Um, I'd look up their biography. Uh, at those days, we didn't have the internet. So you have to do all the research yourself. And these days there's researchers that help um, broadcasters. They go do that work for them. But I did all that work myself and I shared it with my host so that my host would look good because a lot of broadcasters in the early days didn't know anything about swimming. So I was kind of like a researcher and an expert. And I really helped people like Jim McKay or Keith Jackson, some of the famous names in my era when I worked with them. And I think that's why I had a long career because I was seen as someone that was cooperative as a broadcaster. I didn't hog it all for myself. And um, I think that really helped me. Yeah. So what are your favorite memories of sports broadcasting? Well, I think my favorite was always covering the Olympics. And I think my very, very favorite was 1984 Olympics when I was able to cover the swimming, the synchronized swimming, interviews with track and field. And then I co-hosted the late night show with Jim Lampley where I got to talk to everyone. And I don't know if anybody ever has paid, played that many roles as a broadcaster in one Olympics. And um, that was my favorite. But I think, you know, I've interviewed uh, athletes and politicians. Uh, I did an in-depth interview with Nancy Kerrigan who was a great skater who had that big incident with Tanya Harding when she was hit on the knee by another athlete and it almost ruined her Olympic career. So after the Olympics, I went back and I did a whole special on that, on Kerrigan, Nancy Kerrigan, mm -hmm. and put that all in perspective. But, um, you know, I think traveling all over the world, going to the former Soviet Union, now we call it Russia, going to Cuba and interviewing Tila Philo Stevenson, who won the gold medal in boxing, um, going to South America, going to China to cover some of the very first competitions in China, gymnastics. So I got to see the world not only as an athlete, but as a broadcaster. And I think that's part of the benefit of what I was able to do. It wasn't just covering a sport. It was going to a country and putting the, the event in perspective to what was going on in the history in that country. Wow. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot <laughs> to process. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, being in Munich during the Olympics, unfortunately, when um, there was a terrorist attack and the Israeli athletes wound up losing their lives because of a, of, of a political statement during the games, sitting in the grass with a walkie-talkie behind the cinder block 
apartment building where the athletes were being held. I mean, I never imagined as a sportscaster, I'd be part of this coverage, but um, you, it's the unexpected. And a lot of sportscasters were really not respected as much as newscasters, but they earned our respect because we do, we don't write it and then read it. You're covering it as it unfolds. So you have to think very quickly and you have to know your facts. You don't have a bunch of producers around you telling you this is that and this is that. You you have to know everything. And uh, there were a lot of awards given after the coverage of the Munich Olympics because somebody like Jim McKay did such an amazing job and Peter Jennings, uh, who was a great newscaster. And I was around those people, learning from them, being next to them, probably not even realizing how fortunate I was to be associated with such amazing people during that time as we really painted the canvas of how you cover Olympics because we were the first to do it the way we did it. Yeah. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I wanted to be a great athlete and then I wanted actually, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I wanted to change things and make things better. Uh, I never became a lawyer, but I became very active on athletes' rights and especially for opportunities for women in sport because in my day, we just had so few. We didn't have high school teams or college teams or scholarships. So I, I got very active in working with politicians in, in, legislate, in legislation like Title IX, which gave women scholarships. I helped start the Women's Sports Foundation with Billie Jean King, and we've raised over 80, $90 million in the years we've been associated to give out for travel and training and for research. So even though I wasn't a lawyer, um, I was able to work in that world. And when was the last time you wore your medal out? I don't think I put on my medal I can't remember the last time I put on my medal. I did take my medal, however, to St. Joseph's College just recently because I was on a panel to just talk about Title IX, which is that, that law that opened the door for women, you know, in education and in sport. And it's the 50th anniversary and, and the students wanted to see my medal. So I took my medal, but I didn't put it on. Other people have put it on though. They like to take pictures with the medal on them but what's happening is the ribbon after all these years is starting to fray a little so i have to be a little careful with the metal oh wow do you have any more questions Dylan? i don't have many more questions but um what advice do you have for people like me who want to do sports broadcasting well, I think what you're doing now is really important because you're getting used to researching, doing the questions, understanding each sport. I think that having a comprehensive understanding of the sports world is important. I know that when I was starting out, I started out in swimming and I was an expert, a technical expert, but then I had to learn all about the politics of sport. I had to learn about other sports. I had to get some coaching so that I had kind of a California slang. I didn't finish my words. I'd say things like something and, and nothing. 
instead of something and nothing. And I had to learn to use my voice. So it wasn't too high pitched when I was covering swimming because you want people to hear you and not go, ooh, shrieky voice. And then I learned that I had to try to find work wherever I could. I had to volunteer wherever I could to get the experience I needed to get off what I call the pool deck. Because I didn't want to just do swimming. I wanted to do everything. So you work for your school newspaper. I think writing is really important, learning how to write succinctly. Because all of a sudden, if you write a lot, you're writing in your head as you talk. It's all there. So, you know, you're on your way. Yeah. Well, Donna, it's been such a treat talking to you. Thank you for sharing your advice. Yes, thank you again for taking this Sunday afternoon. All right. You're welcome. Glad we could work it out. You take care. Bye. Once again, you've been listening to a special episode of Stellan Sportscast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, tell your friends. Go to stellansportscast.com, email us at stellansportscast at gmail.com, and check back for new episodes and more interviews in the future.